Bibles, please, and open them to Revelation chapter 16. This evening, we come to the final plague of the tribulation period. We've been discussing this for about a month now. And this is the seventh vial of God's wrath that's poured out upon the earth. And when this last plague is through, the tribulation period comes to an end, and then Christ begins his glorious reign upon the earth. If you've been reading ahead, which I hope some of you that some of you have, uh, you'll notice that chapter 17 does not begin the millennial reign of Christ. Instead, what it does, it drops back and it picks up some things that are going on in the tribulation period. And particularly, those two chapters deal with the rise and the fall of ecclesiastical Babylon and that of the political kingdom of the, of the Antichrist. And so, when we finish up this plague, we don't get to talk immediately about the millennial kingdom. So, if you're expecting that... It's going to be a little while before we do so because we've still got some other chapters to go through. And when we get into chapter 19, we'll talk a little bit more about the Battle of Armageddon. And then uh, into chapter 20, we'll speak about the millennial reign of Christ and then also quite a bit about heaven. But our task tonight is still tribulation time. And, of course, we've been on this for quite some time now. And the seventh plague is what brings to close the tribulation. I want to begin reading with verse number 12. Uh, This is the sixth plague where we're going to start reading. Then we'll go on to the end of the chapter. I guess I'll leave you sitting there. You look like you're all comfortable. So I'll just let you sit down. Verse number 12. And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of devils working miracles which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And he gathered them together into a place called, in the Hebrew tongue, Armageddon. And the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air. And there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings. And there was a great earthquake, such as was not since men were upon the earth, so mighty an earthquake and so great. And the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, And great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, for the plague thereof was exceeding great." Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We ask you, Lord, that you would just... Uh, open our hearts up to the truth of your word tonight. Help us to see what you'd have for us here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to take uh, just a quick moment to do a quick rundown of the uh, last six plagues. Your outline has these listed, and we've been over these, of course, before. But I did want to start the outline with number seven, because there might be some of you that weren't here and heard the other messages. So we'll just get a little brief review. But very briefly, there are... Uh, seven angels total that are the handlers for God's vials of wrath. And each of them has a plague that they bring on the earth. They do this in very quick succession. So probably what we're looking at here for all seven plagues to be poured out 
most likely is not more than just a, a few days or a few weeks. Vial number one, an angel comes out in vial number one. We've labeled this boils because of the beast. The first angel has a plague that's directed at the followers of the Antichrist, and it's a blain upon their flesh. They're horrible sores that torment them. And really, this is nothing more than what God has already said would happen. He already gave a warning that if people took the mark of the beast, if they gladly followed him, they could expect that there would be great tribulation that would come upon them. These are sores that have no recovery. And what they do is they don't really push men towards repentance, but rather they push them further away from God into more rebellion. Remember that chapter 14, the end of chapter 14, was the last opportunity to repent. And so uh, now God's grace has been withdrawn from the world. And when you don't have the Holy Spirit to convict people and to grant repentance and faith, no one can be saved. And so uh, chapter 14 was the end of God's grace, and that's why men continue to rebel against God. Then vial number two was the souls of the sea. The second angel brings a plague upon the sea in which all the waters in the seas are turned to blood, and that results in the death of all sea life. Vial number three, all all water is wastewater. Uh, The third vial is a plague that's poured out upon the fresh water supplies. And I think this shows us why things must quickly draw to a close. I suggested in one of the messages that this could be part of the impetus why uh, people go to Armageddon to try to fight against the Lord. There is no water supply, and so people could possibly be driven mad. And so they think they must defeat God or die. Then vial number four is the scorching sun. I don't know how God does this, but I do know that God is in control of the chemistry and the physics of the universe. And so whenever God wants to, all he has to do is reach over, turn the knob, and turn the thermostat up on the sun, and the sun intensifies its heat. And it could be that the meaning here is that radiation is increased over all of the earth so that uh, people living then will literally have the, the flesh burned off the bones by intense radiation. Vial number five is darkness and despair. Verse number 10 says, And the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seat of the beast, and his kingdom was full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues for pain, and blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and repented not of their deeds. Then vial number six is the march to Megiddo. Now here things are really getting interesting because... This plague, this sixth plague, brings a march of all the armies into the world into a place in Israel that's called Armageddon. God is the one who moves all of these people into place. He puts them into position. Now they're all in one location. And God has the intention that when he gets them all in one place, he takes them out with one sweeping blow. This is what chapter 14 called the winepress of God's wrath. And so all the armies are in position and... God, of course, as I said, put them there, but they all think that it's their idea. Uh, They believe that they can be victorious against God just by their sheer numbers. And here we see that there's an army gathered of, of 200 million strong, and they believe that they can defeat the forces of God, which contains millions of angels and the saints of God. But they can't even begin to imagine how far off their calculations are. They don't have any chance, and so God is going to step on them like bugs, or, as it says here, like grapes, is what we had earlier, and the blood of all those that die stain the white linen robes of the Lord. So that brings us then to the seventh and the final plague. And this is where God ends it all 
and then he'll bring in the kingdom of righteousness. So let's break it down, as Alfred would say, and let's discuss this. Number seven is vial number seven, which is the breakup of Babylon. Verse number 17, And the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air, and there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. Now we begin the effects of the seventh plague with the last stronghold of Satan. In chapter 13, there was a radical change that was made to the way that Satan is allowed to operate in God's universe. Go all the way back to the beginning of time when God created the world, somewhere thereabouts. We don't know exact timing of this, but probably just before the world was created, Lucifer fell, and from that point, God has permitted him to have access to any place in the universe that he desires to go. As far as the Bible tells us, there is no limitation put upon Satan. Uh, there are no restrictions. And so uh, the last place that we would ever think that Satan would appear once he fell would be back in heaven. But the scriptures are clear that at the present time, uh, Satan does have access to heaven. And we're told that he is the accuser of the brethren. And so he appears before God to slander God's people. He tries to get God to abandon us. And I don't know how Satan is able to do this, how he moves about the universe, but he must do it with with really great ease, moving between heaven and earth. But in chapter 13, all of that changes. God is through with the lies that he tells in heaven, and so God casts him down to the earth, and he restricts his movements throughout the heavens. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, there it calls Satan the prince and the power of the air. 2 Corinthians calls him the God of this world. And so when God cast him down to the earth, the very last place that he has to operate is within the earth's sphere, within the earth's atmosphere. He can't go beyond that. And so Satan is confined to do the worst of all that he can do right to this earth. So we notice in verse number 7 something I think that is a very important notation. The angel pours out his vial into the air. That is the last stronghold of Satan. And so now God is ready to take him. He's going to bind him and remove him from the earth, put him into the abyss, and there he'll be chained for a thousand years. In Revelation chapter 20, it says, And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. So now... We're just moments away from the beginning of Christ's reign upon the earth. And he can't have a God of this world. He can't have another God beside himself. So he's not going to allow Satan to afflict anymore. That's when he takes him and puts him into the bottomless pit. And then with this plague also comes the last earthquake on earth. I guess you would call this the mother of all earthquakes. It's one like the world has never seen before. Verse 18 says, And there were voices and thunders and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such as was not since men were upon the earth, so mighty an earthquake and so great. Now there have been many earthquakes during the tribulation. In chapter 6 there was an earthquake with the opening of the sixth seal. In chapter 8, there was another one before the sounding of the seven trumpets. In chapter 11, there are two earthquakes. One of those occurred when the two witnesses were resurrected, and that earthquake caused uh, uh, caused one-tenth of Jerusalem to be destroyed and for 7,000 people to be killed. And then there's another in that chapter uh, when heaven is open and then the Ark of the Covenant is displayed. 
Well, living in California, we know quite a bit about earthquakes, I think. We've had a lot of earthquakes in the last 50 years around the world. Uh, 250,000 people were killed in Haiti this year. There was an earthquake in Chile recently. In 1976, 255,000 people were killed in China. In 2004, 300,000 were killed in Indonesia. Those were all devastating quakes. But what we've never seen before in all the history of the world is a succession of earthquakes in such a short period of time where it's possible that even billions of people are killed by them in the tribulation. That's what the tribulation is like. And the last one occurs at the end of the tribulation. And this one is bigger than them all. So the Word of God says that all the cities of the world crumble and fall. Now, sometimes we uh, feel earthquakes here, maybe just a faint tremor from one that has an epicenter, uh, possibly even hundreds of miles away. But I think probably this earthquake's epicenter is the center of the earth, and it's so powerful that it destroys the cities of the world, shakes the entire world. The third result of this plague is the last judgment on Jerusalem. Verse number 19, And the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. I believe that the great city it's speaking of is Jerusalem. That's what it's called in chapter 11. When the two witnesses were killed, the Bible says that their bodies laid in the street of the great city, which they described or which Scripture describes as the place where the Lord was crucified. So that identifies it as the city of Jerusalem. So this is an earthquake that shakes Jerusalem and divides it. Now again, I think things are getting quite interesting here because this fits prophecy that we see in the Old Testament. And I think it's one of the ways that we can see how the millennial temple could be built. Some of you, how many of your readers of Table Talk? Some of you are. You might have noticed in last month's magazine that they had some comments in the daily reading about the vision that Ezekiel had concerning the temple. A Table Talk is a great magazine. I read it every day, but there are uh, some things that we have to depart from. And this is one of those times where we have to say we do not agree with their position. Um, they do not believe that there is a literal millennial reign of Christ in which the kingdom is restored to Israel. And so they were talking about this passage in Ezekiel where there's given a description of the temple. That's in Ezekiel chapters 40 through 42. We don't have time to read all of that tonight. But it describes a temple complex that is about 27 million square feet in size. Each side of it is about a mile long. And so it's a huge temple complex. According to Table Talk, their position is that it's impossible to take that as being literal because they're looking at ancient Israel and they said there is no place that a temple like this could be built. A temple of that size or a complex of that size would extend beyond the borders of Jerusalem and there simply is no place to build it on the Temple Mount. And so to get rid of those difficulties, what they do is they allegorize the text. I want to read to you their comment, and um, some of you that's read, read this, you'll be familiar with it. He says, Keeping in mind that Ezekiel was a priest, a revelation of a grand temple was a clear way for the Lord to show him that there was yet a glorious future ahead for the faithful Israelites. Upon their restoration, God's presence and glory would extend past the borders of Jerusalem to the outlying lands. All creation would be his temple, for all creation would then be holy. 
That sounds really good, but what they mean by this is that the kingdom of God is going to be spread by the preaching of the gospel so that all people and all nations are going to be affected by the gospel. And so what they're trying to do do here is to do away with the millennial temple. They just shuck all the details that are given, and they simply say that what God is trying to do, he's trying to impress Ezekiel. Now, I'd encourage you, if you're interested in this, to look in Ezekiel chapter 40 through 42, and there are simply tons of details with with precise measurements and all the different aspects of the temple complex. And after you read that, see if you come to the conclusion that God didn't intend for that to be real. Why would you think that God would go through so much trouble explaining to Ezekiel what this is about if all that he intended to do was to draw from it that all nations would be subject to the gospel? Couldn't God have just said that? I mean, would you think that Ezekiel would be hard to convince that something like this so grand was going to happen, that God could build a temple? Well, God certainly knows what he's talking about, and this is one of the reasons why I can never quite force myself into an ah-mill position or a post-mill position on the millennium. I simply can't do that because there's so many things that you have to explain away by hook or crook. So we're faced then with the dilemma that they bring up in Table Talk is how is there going to be a temple of this size built? How's, it going to, how's that going to work? Well, I think we not only have Revelation to give us the answer to this, but we also have the book of Zechariah. So I'd like you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, please, to Zechariah chapter 14. And if you can't find that, it's easy. It's just before Malachi in the Old Testament. Uh, Zechariah chapter 14. And we have here a prophecy like many that are in the Old Testament. They're near fulfillments and they're far fulfillments, and often they're found in the same portion of Scripture. There's nothing like what we're going to read here that's ever happened in all the history of the world. And so we know that this is something that's yet future. So if you look at verse number 3, I want you to think about Armageddon first, and then after that we think about this earthquake. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 3. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a very great valley. And half of the mountain shall remove toward the north and half of it toward the south. Now, that's telling us that Christ is going to stand on the Mount of Olives. Now, that's the mountain that's just on the east side of Jerusalem. And if you're standing on the Mount of Olives, when you're looking at the city of Jerusalem, you're looking at the eastern gate of the city, the one that's closed up at the present time. Christ is going to stand there, and there's going to be this huge upheaval so that half of the mountain moves towards the north, half of it moves towards the south. And so what you have left is this huge rift, a great valley that's on the eastern side of the city of Jerusalem. Now, what do you think would cause that? How about an earthquake? How about what we have right here in Revelation chapter 16? Because here you have now that the city has moved out of its former position. And do you know what's on the eastern side of the city of Jerusalem? just happens to be the Temple Mount. That's where the temple uh, stood at one time. So we can imagine then with all of this upheaval that the city looks very much different than it does now. And so you have a platform that's been leveled off by an earthquake. And now it can support a building 27 million square feet in size and a mile on, the, on each side of the perimeter. So we don't have to throw out Ezekiel 40 to 42. 
We don't have to allegorize that. We don't have to say, well, God's just trying to make a point that's not real about it. God makes his word fit together perfectly. He explains Zacharias and Ezekiel's prophecy, and they're fulfilled in the beginning of the millennial kingdom, uh, uh, filled at the time the millennial kingdom begins, which corresponds to the last plague that falls upon the earth. Now, next we go on, and we see the fourth here is the last beast in Babylon. Verse number 19 says, And the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. We've talked about a while ago how that Babylon has always been the arch nemesis of God's people. I mean, going all the way back to ancient times, right after the flood, Babylon was no count, and, and it represented rebellion against God. And during the kingdom age, during the last part of the history of the Old Testament, Babylon conquered Israel, conquered Judah. Of course, they had become a prominent world power. They conquered Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. There have been beasts that are in Babylon. And I'm not talking about animals, but I'm speaking about men who are beasts. Nebuchadnezzar was one. He was a great enemy of God's people. Belshazzar was another one. And they afflicted God's people. And so Babylon was destroyed by God. Most recently, there was an attempt to rebuild the city of Babylon. Uh, Saddam Hussein did that just before he was captured and killed. He tried to rebuild the city. And there's anybody who thinks that Saddam Hussein wasn't a beast? I mean, here is, here is a man that killed thousands of his own people. He was a hater of Christianity. There have been lots of beasts that have come out of Babylon. Well, there's going to come another time when another beast arises out of Babylon. And he's the Antichrist. But he's the last one that's ever going to appear because God is going to take care of him. And he's going to take care of Babylon forever. Chapter 17 and 18 tell us about that, how God is going to bring Babylon down. There are some people who believe that when the Bible is speaking of Babylon, that it's not really talking about uh, the city, but it's uh, the, the ancient city of Babylon, but rather it's another name for the city of Rome. Now, I don't have any exceptionally strong feelings about that. I, I suspect that the old city of Babylon will actually be rebuilt, but if this is referring to Rome, then it's also true that there have been many beasts that have been in Rome. Rome has always been the enemy of God's people. And the thing about it is, it didn't stop at the end of the Roman Empire. Rome is still the enemy of God's people. There have been a steady flow of beasts that have come out of there. For 1,500 years, there have been popes in Rome that have killed millions of people, millions of Baptist people all down throughout the centuries. There have been many wicked popes that the Roman Catholic Church admits themselves were horrible men, despicable men. And I really don't have a whole lot of trouble... And, and this might disturb you a little bit. I hope it doesn't. But I don't have any trouble putting today's pope into the same class with all of the others. Because what the Roman Catholic do, Church does is teach a false gospel. And so there are millions of people that are duped by that and they're headed to hell. And it's all because of this stranglehold of bishops and cardinals and, and popes that have been over the Roman Catholic Church. So if it's speaking about Rome here, Rome is going to come down. Benedict XVI will protect the last pedophile priest, and then it's all going to be destroyed. Babylon is going to see its last beast. Fifthly, the last horror from heaven. 
And we'll skip down to verse 21 for a moment, then we're going to come back to verse number 20 to end the message. Verse 21 says, And there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, for the plague thereof was exceeding great. I read in the paper, I think it was a few weeks ago, that um, I don't know how long ago it was, but there were some hailstones that fell in Guerneville that, that were about the size of golf balls. It's a good place for hailstones to fall, but they were about the size of a golf ball. I remember in Kentucky some very unusual times. I mean, there, were, uh, at, there had been times where there were hailstones the size of baseballs that fell. And you can imagine what, a, what terrible devastation you would have from, from a hailstones that are that size. I remember one particular uh, hailstorm that we had, and this, wasn't, uh, this one didn't have huge hailstones, but they were small ones. And, and it was such a heavy hailstorm that all the cars that were outside when that hailstorm came had dents all over them. So the, the body shops had a heyday. I mean, if you were in that business, it was great to have hailstones like that. But these stones are something that people have never seen before because it says they're the weight of a talent. And that's somewhere between 100 to 130 pounds. Can you imagine if you dropped a 130-pound weight, say, off the top of the Empire State Building? A few years ago when we were visiting New York, uh, we went up in the Empire State Building, and the guide said, you know, if you dropped a nickel off the observation deck of the Empire State Building, it was able to go straight down that it would embed itself in the concrete sidewalk below. Now imagine if you just dumped something 130 pounds from a place like that. Well, here you have a picture of of hailstones falling from heaven, just like a huge dump truck opened up his gate, and and oversized, huge-sized gravel falls down upon the earth. And with all the thousands of dollars that are done by small hailstones on crops, I mean, actually, hail destroys more crops in the world than any other single thing, any other single natural disaster. Hail destroys more. Well, when these hailstones are through... There won't be a field in the earth left. But you don't need any because this is the last plague. After this, God finishes it up. He doesn't need anything anymore. And the next act that God brings upon the world is a conflagration in which he burns up the entire world. So that brings me to the last part of the breakup of Babylon. And this is the first look at a new land. Verse number 18. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings. And there was a great earthquake such as was not since men were upon the earth, so mighty an earthquake and so great. And then if you look at verse 20, and every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. Well, now we go back to this earthquake that's so violent that it shakes down the cities of the world. But it says something else here. Every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. So this is an earthquake that completely changes the topography of the earth. Islands in the sea disappear. The great mountain ranges are flattened. And so the millennial kingdom, the millennial time, will see a world that's very much different than we see today. Now, I want you to go in your Bibles, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 40. And perhaps this scripture that's been familiar to you would take on maybe a little bit different meaning after we look at Revelation. But uh, Isaiah chapter 40, and we'll start reading with verse number 3. Isaiah 40, verse number 3. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare you the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. 
Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and rough places plain. And we're going to read more in just a minute, but do you remember what this refers to? This, this prophecy was repeated by Luke in the New Testament in reference to the ministry of John the Baptist. And it says that John the Baptist, or it's a prophecy about how he came to prepare the way of Christ. Now, when it's evident by reading this prophecy that it has more than just that nearer fulfillment when Christ came, but it also has a long-term fulfillment as well. Because when Christ came the first time, he was rejected as a king. But Christ is going to come back to the world to rule as a king. So we have to go beyond the first advent to the second advent of Christ. And all this period of time that's passed in between is of little consequence to God. Time means nothing at all to him. So Christ will come back to rule upon the earth. And when he comes, this earthquake will come, and mountains will be brought down, and the whole earth is going to be smoothed out. Now, we go on reading with verse number 5. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. Now, here's how we know that this is not just speaking about John the Baptist. For the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. The voice said, Cry. And he said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all the goodness thereof is as the flower of the field. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, because the Spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass, the grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our Lord shall stand forever. O Zion, that bringeth good tidings, get thee up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, that bringeth good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with his strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. Isn't that a great passage? This isn't the first time that the earth's topography has been changed. Today's world is not the same as it was created. There was probably only one continent when God created the world, just one large landmass, and that was relatively smooth. And that changed when God sent the flood. When the flood came, the fountains of waters that were in the earth were broken up, and there were great earthquakes at that time, and that's what pushed up and formed the mountains. And so when Noah came out, he saw a vastly different world than what he saw before he went into the ark, because now there were lakes and there were rivers, there were streams where there weren't any before. The mist that watered the earth had been changed into a new hydrological cycle, There were oceans that divided land masses, and as I said, the great mountain ranges were formed at that time. Henry Morris writes about this. He says, The gently rolling topography of the world as originally created will be restored. No more will there be great, inaccessible, uninhabitable mountain ranges ranges or deserts or ice caps. The physical environment of the millennium will be, in large measure, a restoration of the antediluvian environment. Though it will be of great benefit to the world's future inhabitants, these terrestrial convulsions will be incredibly fearful to its present inhabitants. And some have suggested that the mountains will be brought down, the islands, which are, of course, mountains in the sea, they're going to be brought down. And it very well could be that Mount Zion, where the temple complex is going to be built, that Mount Zion could very well be the highest point on the earth during the millennial period. 
And so people from all over, from hundreds of miles away, will be able to see that great shining city of God that sits on the hill. Now that sounds a lot better than, to me than trying to allegorize this whole thing and explain it away. I don't think that we need to dump Ezekiel. So we're speaking here of the coming age of Christ. And it doesn't happen until the last plagues change it all. Now I want to mention just a couple of things before I close tonight. The thought came to me the other day when I was reading in the paper and watching on television about the volcano that they had in Iceland. And I think, you know, that's still erupting there. But that one volcano shut down air travel over the whole continent of Europe. One volcano in one small place. The airlines are all shut down, and they said that Europe's economy is so shaky because of that that it could fall. Now, of course, some of that is, or much of it is precipitated by the American economy, and we live in a global economy so that the ills of one nation or a group of nations affect the entire world. But just think about that. One volcano in that small place and all the economic destruction that that caused. Now, you transfer that into the tribulation period when there are earthquakes and volcanoes that are set off by earthquakes. And you think about the economic disaster that will occur. And there's going to be somebody who's going to say, well, I can fix all this. I can help you with your economy. I can make things right. And that will be the Antichrist. And it paves the way for him coming because he says he can fix things. Then you think about this too. What about hundreds of oil platforms that are shaken loose by earthquakes? Then what are the oceans of the world going to look like well we can easily see how we're headed that direction and it might come sooner than we think when you think about those uh, microchips that we have now and we think about the mark of the beast it could come sooner than we think now if Harold Camping is right you pack up everything and you get ready to go on May 21st 2011 how many of you know who Harold Camping is Oh, most of you do. Okay, well, you listen to Family Radio. Uh, he's the owner of Family Radio. I, I was reading about him the other day and his calculations concerning uh, why the world is going to end on May 21st, 2011. Now, I want you to pay close attention because if it comes up in the quiz, you may miss this and you won't, you know, you're going to miss the whole thing. Uh, here's, here's what I read about him. Harold Camping lets out a hearty chuckle when he considers the people who believe the world will end in 2012. That date has not one stitch of biblical authority, Camping says, from the Oakland office where he runs Family Radio, an evangelical station that reaches listeners around the world. It's like a fairy tale. The real date of the end times, he says, is 2011. The Mayans in the recent Hollywood movie 2012 have put the apocalypse in the popular mind this year. But Camping has been at this business for a long time. And while Armageddon is pop science or big screen entertainment to many, Camping has his followers from the Bay Area to China. Camping 88 has scrutinized the Bible for almost 70 years, and he's developed a mathematical system to interpret prophecies hidden within the good book. One night a few years ago, Camping, a civil engineer by trade, crunched the numbers and was stunned at what he found. The world will end May 21st, 2011. This is not the first time Camping has made a bold prediction about Judgment Day. On September 6, 1994, dozens of Camping's believers gathered inside Alameda's Veterans Memorial Building to await the return of Christ, an event Camping had promised for two years. Followers dressed children in their Sunday best and held Bibles open-faced toward heaven. 
But the world did not end. Camping allowed that he may have made a mathematical error. He spent the next decade running new calculations. By Camping's understanding, the Bible was dictated by God, and every word and number carries a spiritual significance. He noticed that particular numbers appeared in the Bible at the same time particular themes are discussed. The number five, Camping concluded, equals atonement. Ten is completeness. Seventeen means heaven. Camping patiently explained how he reached his conclusion for May 21, 2011. Christ hung on the cross April 1st, 33 A.D., he began. Now go to April 1st of 2011 A.D., and that's 1,978 years. Camping then multiplied 1,978 by 365.2422 days, the number of days in each solar year, not to be confused with a calendar year. Now I read that and I figured, that's why I went wrong. I I didn't use the solar year instead of the calendar year. Uh, Next, Camping noted that April 1st to May 21st encompasses 51 days. Add 51 to the sum of previous multiplication total, and it equals 722,500. Camping realized that 5 times 10 times 17 times 5 times 10 times 17 equals 722,500. Or put into words, atonement times completeness times heaven squared. 5 times 10 times 17 is telling you a story, Camping said. It's the story from the time Christ made payment for your sins until you are completely saved. I tell you, I just about fell off my chair when I realized that, Camping said. And with that, we're not going to fall out of our chairs, but we're going to sit in them just a moment and pray. Then we're going to get up and go home. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your many blessings. Thank you, Lord, that we're able to look into your word tonight. And Lord, we have to believe exactly what your word says. We don't make any excuses for it. We don't try to explain it away. Uh, You've told us we don't know the day or the hour that you're coming. Calculations trying to figure this out are foolish. We're to keep our eyes always looking for your return because it could happen today. We thank you, Lord, for your people who are interested in your word. And Lord, help us to, to live your word and just to to show people the way of Christ every day with our lives and what we tell them. So we ask you, Lord, you bless us as we leave here tonight. We uh, pray, Lord, that you be with us through this week and help us to do your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.